0: Hello, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today we're celebrating the life and music of Buddy Holly. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale
1: and Dan Del Fiorentino, and Mike Mullins.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants, and that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org. All right. So this episode is dedicated to the music and life and career of Buddy Holly because anybody want to clue in our listeners?
2: Um, well, it's the 60th anniversary of the day that famous plane took off. Is that correct?
1: That's right. And as Don McLean said, the day the music died. And so we are commemorating the uh, 60th anniversary as a celebration. Because his music uh, and uh, his legacy continues, as do the uh, two other entertainers on that plane, which we'll talk about in this podcast, thanks to clips from the uh, NAM oral history program. We have several people who uh, worked with, played with, and were influenced by Buddy Holly that we'll be talking about and playing their uh, interview portions today during this podcast.
0: Yeah, and this is just a very small segment of the content that has to do with Buddy Holly. So if this is a topic that really fascinates you or at the conclusion of this podcast, you want more information, you can go on to our our website and check out the tag for Buddy Holly and see a wealth of content because it's a topic that Dan likes to discuss a lot because he was so influential. (laughs) Um, And they can do that where, Mike?
2: You can do that at www.nam.org. That's nam, N-A-M-M, org, slash library.
1: And, Mike, I thought it might be kind of a fun idea at the top of this podcast <coughs> to just give the listeners an idea of the people that we are going to be including in today's
2: podcast. Could you run down that list? Sure. Some of the people we're going to hear from include Sonny Curtis, Eric Burden, Tommy Rowe, Brian Setzer, Don McLean and Danny White. So for those Buddy Holly fans out there, I know
1: that's a very impressive list. Uh, For those who are are less familiar with those folks and their connection with Buddy, I think this is going to be a very intriguing podcast. So perhaps we should start off.
0: Yeah. So the way we typically structure these podcasts, if you've been listening in the past, is we kind of weave together everybody's story in a thematic format. So that way we tell a story, we tell the story from beginning to end. Um, but we're going to change it up just a little bit because we have such diverse content from each of these guys, and so you're going to hear from each interviewee um, and it's in its. The clips we've pulled in in their entirety and then we're going to shift to someone new. So the first person we're going to hear from today is Sonny Curtis and I bet Dan has just a just a little bit of background information on him for us.
1: Well Sonny played with Buddy and we're going to be hearing those stories but uh, for those of you uh, who are unfamiliar with his name uh, in addition to being a fantastic musician he was also and is a songwriter some of the songs that Sonny has written over the years include the theme song to the Mary Tyler Moore TV uh, show, which I know is now starting to be played in your heads. Um, yeah? No? Nope. And, nope. um... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: All I know is she was from Minneapolis, and she throws her hat at the air, in the air at the end?
2: Yes. Yeah. Right. But that's more than I know, so...
1: Who can turn the world on with a smile? Nope, still no, nothing. nothing? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll sing it to you later. Um, and I fought the law, but the law... Won. Very good. I know that one. <laughs> came <Okay>. in second. <laughs> <laughs> so let's begin by hearing a little bit of uh, Sonny Curtis and how he met Buddy.
3: A friend of mine that had gone to school with me in Meadow, he uh, was actually my best friend uh, all through my life, and uh, he moved from Meadow to Lubbock, and he came down to Meadow on weekends and he said uh, there, are, there are these two guys Buddy Holly and Bob Montgomery and they play at our assembly programs <laughs> and uh, he said I've told them about you and uh, they want to meet you and I said well man I'd love to meet them and, uh, and I had been on a, a couple of uh, programs uh, on TV the TV was brand new in Lubbock but uh, there was a guy named Bernie Howell who had an organ uh, he played the organ and he had a show 15 minutes every afternoon and i you know it's a long story but i got mixed up with him and he said i want you to do my show and so i went on his show and sang a couple of songs and so buddy and bob were familiar with me and uh but uh, i remember one day it was a sandstormy afternoon which is not unusual in lubbock texas but my friend and i the one from meadow that uh, he and I went out to Bob Montgomery's house, and we, uh, I, I can't imagine why I hadn't been in school, but he got off the school bus. His folks ran the gin cafe, which was out south of Lubbock, uh, the cotton gin, and, uh, and he got off the bus, and he said, we got to go over to Buddy's house, and so we jumped in the car and went over to Buddy's house, and I'll never forget, we... Uh, <laughs> we uh <clears throat> didn't have any small talk we just sort of met and got our guitars and went straight to the main thing which was picking and uh and buddy was kind of a funny looking at the time uh, he uh had he had dyed his hair blonde but it was growing out he was black headed and, and he had dyed his hair blonde and and it was growing out, and I, I remember thinking that he looked kind of like a black and tan coon now. <laughs>
1: what was he playing at the
3: time? He played guitar, but he also. Uh, they he it, it, uh, fortunately for me they were big bluegrass fans, and uh, he played. Uh, he had a four-string banjo, and he could kind of uh, you know like. Uh, copying uh, Earl Scruggs a little bit. And uh, Bob uh, Montgomery, uh, I don't know if you know Bob, but he became a successful record producer and music publisher uh, in Nashville and uh, and also a terrific songwriter. But he played the banjo some, but he played guitar very well. And I played fiddle in the group, but I also played uh, lead guitar uh, some. And uh, so we, we uh, we had a bass player named Larry Wellborn, and then there was a a guy named Don Guess who played bass and steel guitar. And we uh, we played for all the uh, car lot openings and the grocery store openings and just wherever we could go, you know. And, uh, and if if somebody wanted to record us, man, we would say, well, just wait till we get our guitars out. And <laughs>
0: All right. So that was Sonny Curtis talking about meeting Buddy Holly and Buddy playing the guitar and banjo and some other members of the Crickets, if I got that right. You did. Great job. There's a lot of pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. No pressure.
1: (laughs) I think this might be a good opportunity to just give a little background on Buddy Holly and sort of get us up to date as to how his career got started. Uh, Buddy was born Charles Harden. Holly in uh, September on September 7th 1936 in Lubbock Texas and really uh, very similar to Elvis was influenced by three major styles of music which he wound up combining and that is uh, music of the church country and Western music which is very prominent on the radio in Lubbock Texas as you can imagine and rhythm and blues so um Unlike Elvis, uh, Buddy Holly got on television uh, as early as 1952 uh, with his first television appearance. And um, in 1953, Buddy formed a, tuo, a, a duo with his buddy, uh, Bob Montgomery, called Buddy and Bob. And again, this is all prior to Elvis, so a very interesting early influence on uh, Rockabilly. Buddy Holly and Bob Montgomery were playing sort of a a loose version of of, uh, rhythm and blues and jump blues along with country music, not quite yet in that same raw feeling of uh, rockabilly but certainly very close to it. He also uh, opened for Elvis three different times in 1955 when young Elvis uh, was still getting started um, before his big break in 1956. And interestingly enough, it was while uh, Buddy Holly was opening for Bill Haley in the comments, which uh, you might remember had a big hit with Rock Around the Clock, considered to be one of the very first rock and roll hits on the charts. Uh, That was really when uh, Buddy was discovered. And he was discovered by a guy named uh, Eddie... Crandall, who worked for the um, Decca Records Company in Nashville, and the very famous record producer Owen Bradley was given the task to uh, produce Buddy Holly, but it didn't work out too well. Buddy was not too happy with what Owen Bradley was doing with his music. He thought he was trying to make him more of a country s- singer and star, and so Buddy opted out of that and went back to. Um, Uh, A guy he had heard about before named uh, Norman Petty, who had a recording studio in Clovis, New Mexico, and that's where Buddy uh, did a demo on the thing called That'll Be the Day, which of course was, uh, once it was released by Brunswick Records, became the, uh, the very first big hit for Buddy Holly and the Crickets, so that was 1957. And now you're thinking, okay, 1957, his first hit came out. Remember, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary, or 60th anniversary, rather, of uh, the day the music died. Uh, He didn't have a very long career, uh, less than three years, really, uh, on the top of the charts. So trying to put all this in perspective, in a very short period of time, we're now going to dedicate the rest of the podcast on the fact that Rock and roll music was completely influenced by this guy, and the careers of many people, including The Animals, and uh, Don McLean, and Peter Asher, and on and on. Uh, the Beatles, John Lennon often said that Buddy Holly was his strongest influence. All these guys were influenced by this young guy wearing Hornwind glasses and uh, his his feet a little bowed, um, not, not the hippest guy in the class, but the common guy, the, the kid that looks a lot like you, as Peter Asher would tell us in, in his interview. This is a, a normal looking kid, a little awkward, a little geeky, a little nerdy, and playing music and getting the girls, you know, sort of winning everything. And that charm, along with that talent and the songwriting abilities and that, that special music, uh, was really a major influence on rock and roll, which is one of the reasons Buddy Holly was among the very first inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they opened in 1986. So um, talk about an influence.
0: That was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> very informative. Sorry. The best part is Dan didn't have any notes in front of him. No, just kidding. He did. Um, so with that being said, we're going to kind of jump back to our interview here. And we're going to hear more from Sonny Curtis. And we're going to start with him talking about playing the electric guitar uh, before his first recording with Buddy. And we have this discussion a little bit earlier that I'm sure Mike is going to cut out and we're going to rework right here about, you know, what is what did that really mean for for rock and roll music? And what place in history did Sonny's playing the electric guitar with Buddy Holly and the Crickets kind of how did that fit in the timeline of it all and um we came to the conclusion thanks to dan's expertise that there were a lot of people doing this before buddy holly brought uh the electric guitar such as we said um chuck berry we could probably name a couple more i would imagine
1: yeah well chuck was certainly the the, the biggest influence on that playing an electric guitar for sure
0: and so but the difference is is that uh chuck berry just didn't have many tv appearances and we kind of equate that to the the times and who was, quote unquote, allowed to be on TV versus who wasn't and all that jazz. And uh, so Buddy Holly and his band had the opportunity to be on syndicated television, to be broadcast across the world, whereas people like Chuck Berry didn't always have that opportunity. And so that's where the difference is. People saw Sonny Curtis with Buddy Holly playing the electric guitar from their homes across the globe, uh, which is why you have Sonny... And Buddy being the influence as opposed to um, maybe Chuck Berry or others more widespread. You know, in our interview with Graham Nash, he talks about being influenced by Buddy Holly. Well, if maybe he saw more of Chuck Berry, that would have been a different answer in his interview.
1: Absolutely. And I also think part of it has to do with the type of influence. Chuck Berry was certainly an influence on the style of playing, which you can pick up just by listening. And Buddy was more of the full package. You know, he really um, allowed people um, to embrace their own style. And and even if they were a little shy or a little nerdy or their hair didn't quite comb the right way or they had hormone glasses, you know, and they didn't look the part of like Elvis um, sort of a superstar-looking kind of person, you could still be a rock and roll star. And I think that influence is w- really why it's more heartfelt, if that's the right way of saying it, uh, with these musicians uh, like Elton John and Bob Dylan who have taken opportunities in acceptance speeches to make sure that they um, called out Buddy Holly as major influence on their lives, not just their music. And I think that is where we're at with um, with the major influence uh, on rock and roll is that the kind of the whole package. I mean, he was writing songs, he was playing this Fender electric guitar, and looking pretty cool, and um, and performing with a very knockout band that had uh, a great rhythm section. So uh, this whole sort of um, full package of the of what the Crickets offered in 1957. Um, was really new and different and embraceable. It didn't completely offend the parents because it was a nice kid from Lubbock. You know, I think that's another part of it. So all of these elements really went into um, what we call the influence of Buddy Holly.
0: Yeah, I think it sounds like kind of the perfect storm of the right packaging at the right time and the right exposure.
1: Plus, we got to say, I got to emphasize these amazing songs. I mean, they're <laughs> really fun songs to listen to. I mean, even today, it's so fun to hear an, a, a, a recent band cover things like Not Fade Away. That's a great tune, and, and it has been covered nearly every decade that I know of by a new band, and it still stands up. Rave On, another one. Um, it's so easy. Heartbreak. Uh, heartbeat, rather, um, and my uncle's favorite song, Maybe Baby, which uh, I probably have heard a million zillion times. And that's in addition to his biggest hits, which, of course, were Oh Boy, uh, Peggy Sue, and That'll Be the Day. So uh, an amazing catalog of songs that were fun to play and listen to. And as these young musicians, uh, many of which we're talking about today, who are influenced by him wanted to play in their garage and in their basement and in their bedroom to try to be like Buddy Holly.
0: So let's turn it back over to Sonny talking about playing the electric guitar as well as touring, recording, coming home, and all that went into working with Buddy.
3: I had a Martin D-28, and uh, uh, Norman Petty uh, had a trio, the Norman Petty Trio, and they had some uh, hit records with uh, oh, a Mood Indigo. Uh, and then uh, Norman wrote a song called Almost Paradise. And they were big hit records, but they were real pop. This would have been like in the 54, 55 area, uh, era. And, uh, but Jack Vaughn, who played uh, guitar for Norman Petty, uh, his wife got pregnant and he was going to leave the group. And Norman Petty offered me the job and uh and i remember i went over to discuss it with him and uh i said i don't have an electric guitar and norman said we'll don't worry about that we'll get you an electric guitar i uh i came home and told uh, I, the 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 money was so great man uh, to me at the time it seemed like it was 150 dollars a week and they were going to give me a very small percentage you know or whatever anyway i came home and i called buddy and uh I said, uh, man, I can't, because we, we weren't doing any good at the time. <laughs> and and uh, even though we'd had a record out, you know, like uh, we we thought, oh, man, oh, we're on deck. All we got to do is have a record out, man, and we'll be, we'll be hot in no time. We'll be Elvis before you know it. <laughs> of course, <clears throat> um, we had a lot to learn. <laughs> One of the first ones is, no, not necessarily. <laughs> but uh, I called Buddy on the phone, and I said, Buddy, man, this this is just too good a deal for me to turn down, man. I, <clears throat> I'm i going to do this. And, and uh, Buddy said, don't do this, man. Don't go off out there and play that Mickey Mouse music. You're going to hate that, man. And I said, well, he said he'd buy me a guitar. And Buddy said, I'll buy you an electric guitar, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, so he convinced me. <laughs> I uh, I called Norman and... Uh, and and took a big pass, you know, and uh, and uh, didn't didn't go. And it's funny, but Norman Petty never liked me from that day forward. He's the kind of guy that you didn't turn down, man. And uh, but anyway, that's that's all ancient history. Uh, real ancient history. <laughs> did you regret that? Or did you no, no, right? oh no, I never regretted not going to Norman Petty. Uh, but. But I was with Buddy probably another year, and uh, then uh, we uh, uh, had our parting of the ways. Uh, you know, friendly uh, actually. But uh, I, I got a job uh, to go on the road with Slim Whitman, and I took that job. And uh, and uh, <coughs> I, I've, I've always told people that we were sort of uh, when I was in the group, I, I sort of played Scotty Moore style because Chet Atkins was, he was my idol man, and I was. I, boy, when I got that lick, that's all I ever did. And so I played uh, um, uh, you know Scotty Moore type stuff. And uh, when uh, when I, I've always told people that we were sort of Elvis clones, you know, because we did you know like uh, uh, Buddy he played that uh, my my D28 and I played his uh, Stratocaster and and Don Guest played <clears throat> that slap bass that uh, kind of like Bill Black and. And it's funny, when we saw Elvis for the first time, we started booking out the next day, man, I And mean, Baby Let's Play House and That's All Right, Mama" and everything, we had, <laughs> we had it down. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, anyway, that's um, when when we kind of parted ways and I went on the road with Slim Whitman, uh, and then Buddy started playing uh, lead guitar himself, and he he developed that really hard rock and roll you know rhythmic lead style and uh and so <clears throat> i'm not taking credit now <laughs> but but it was the when he uh, started playing uh lead guitar that uh, uh and then jerry allison who's a great drummer he started uh i remember they played together just the two of them at the roller rink in lubbock and man they just got to where they could feel what each one was going to do and uh, they were terrific together and uh so uh, that's, uh, that's kind of how we got together and got to partied and all that. So once again,
2: we are hearing from Suddy Curtis about his time with Buddy Holly. Next up, we're going to hear a little bit more from him talking about Buddy being influenced by Elvis, as well as um, the needing to get a drummer, the songs that Buddy wrote um, and that Sonny wrote. As well as writing for the crickets and the band, ultimately splitting up.
1: Did Buddy talk to you about watching Elvis and being influenced
3: by him at all? Oh, I don't. I don't know if we talked about it. Oh well, we talk about Elvis all the time. I mean, Buddy and Elvis actually hung out together a little bit. Um, but we uh, we went to all the shows when Elvis came to town. And uh, that uh, there was a picture I th- saw in the magazine. You showed me that uh, that picture was taken April the 10th of 1956. And we were uh, opening for Elvis. I'm not saying we were opening, but we were on the show. Dave Stone used to <laughs> put us on uh, wherever he could because we were freebie. And uh, it's really funny because, like, I'm playing buddies. Uh, Stratocaster and buddy is playing Elvis's um, uh, D18 Elvis had a D18 at the time and and it's really funny because like uh, buddy fooled around during that uh, performance we did and broke a string and Bill Black uh, had to replace that string and uh, he was quite put out with buddy. <laughs> When we first saw Elvis, he didn't have a drummer. They just relied on Bill Black's percussive bass style. But and, that, and that's why we got a drummer, uh, which was J.I. Because <clears throat> uh, Buddy said, "Elvis well, got a drummer. We gotta have one." You know. <laughs> so, and I'll never, I'll never forget when we first saw J.I. He was uh, uh, playing in the high school band and they were practicing for a football game and uh and buddy and I pulled up and parked in his folks car and and uh, and uh, they were just coming to the end of their practice uh uh for the football game the, that week and uh j i came running over to the car and uh he uh, he j i hadn't reached his growth spurt yet and he was he was really kind of short you know <laughs> and i thought. Surely he can't. We're, surely we're not going to get him to play drums for us. But anyway, we did.
1: The one thing I'm not sure about is uh did Buddy ever play or record any of your tunes that
3: he wrote? Uh, he one song called "Rock Around with Ollie V." and uh, uh, that was the first uh, t- uh, trip well not the first trip to nashville we did it and uh, i think we made four trips down here but buddy made one trip that i was i wasn't in the group but uh, we we came down about three or four times to record for deca and uh, he recorded rock around with ollie v which is a song i wrote and uh, that's the only one uh, that he ever got around to recording of course he wrote so many songs that uh, you know he he didn't really need me uh, to write songs for him buddy uh, and the cricket split uh, and i'm not going to guess why but i mean like j.i got married and and uh buddy holly got married j.i married peggy sue of peggy sue fame and uh, and buddy married maria Elena, who was uh, a new york city girl and uh it all happened about the same time, and Buddy wanted to move to New York City because he had a little more vision. You know, he thought that 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 would be a place to be, the place to be, if you're going to pursue a career in music, much better than Lubbock, Texas. But Joe B, or the bass player, uh Joe B. Malden, and uh, and JI, they didn't want to move to uh, New York, so they had a kind of a friendly spit split, split uh, and. Uh, Um, and J.I. called me and asked if I would join the group again and this would have been oh I'm guessing around uh, you know uh, early fall of 1958 and uh, you see Buddy died on February 3rd of 1959 so they had split and he lived in uh, New York and and I went back with the group, and we had a, a terrific singer named Earl Sinks who played, who was the uh, took Buddy's place kind of as the lead singer, and uh, we started trying to book out, but not having much luck. But we did have an album that we uh, the, uh, to do for the Crickets, but then Buddy died, and. Uh, and we were sort of rudderless for a while and we went to uh, New York in about, I think it was in July of 59 and uh, recorded in style with the crickets. And uh, then uh, the Everly brothers called because uh, they had a situation where they were uh, going on the road and hiring pickup bands in various towns and just they'd pass out their music. And they just had some disasters. <laughs> and uh, one night, in, uh, uh, uh this was before Buddy died, they were in Florida, and uh, and Buddy and J.I. and Joe B. Uh, were on the show with Don and Phil, and of course they were all good friends, and Don and Phil said they couldn't get a band together, you know, and uh, Buddy said, we know all your stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll play with you, you know. And, uh, and they evidently backed the Everly Brothers and it just uh, went down a storm and the Everly Brothers all of a sudden got it. <laughs> they said, forget pickup bands, man. <laughs> but anyway, they called J.I. and said that, that they'd like for him to uh, and Joe B. to come play with them. And J.I., I, I had met the Everly Brothers, but I didn't know them that well uh, at the time. And uh, J.I. said, well, uh, we'll... The only way we'd do it is if you'll take our guitar player, Sonny. And so they said, okay. <laughs> and so uh, we, I played that time around for about a year with, their, at least with the, the crickets. And then I got drafted, of course, going into the Army. <laughs>
0: All right. So that concludes our section with Sonny Curtis, and hopefully he has the opportunity out there to listen to this podcast. It'd be a real treat. Absolutely. Um, And next we're going to move on to our second guest who wants to do the honors of introducing him.
2: So next up, we're going to hear from Eric Burden, who is the uh, lead vocalist for a group called The Animals, (laughs) (laughs) which you may have heard of. And he was heavily influenced by Buddy Holly. um, And Dan, when you sat down with him, he had a a lot of good things to say about Buddy.
1: I was really impressed by the opportunity that uh, we had to sit down with uh, Eric but in addition to that, how cool it was that he took so much of the time of his own interview where he could be talking about his own career, he wanted to make sure that he talked about Buddy Holly. So let's play that segment.
4: I met him on the street in Newcastle when I was a kid. There was, um, I, I don't think the crickets were with him, maybe they were, but he was, walk, he was walking down the street, he and Sam Cooke were on the same show together, um At uh, the city hall in Newcastle, and they were out in the early afternoon must have been shopping and they were walking down ma- the main street and uh, when well, you got you're Americans on you, and you yeah. know you know how do you how do you know I said but the way you dress, you know nobody has gabardine overcoats, white raincoats like that, you know and I got into this chat about uh, the clothing i didn't realize. It was Buddy Holly. I th- had a feeling it was uh, Sam Cooke. But, um, yeah, just on Main Street. And that uh, memory stayed with me for a long time. But uh, I, I loved Buddy Holly's recordings. Uh, I have some now that I play. Because they're, um, they're very mysterious in the, in the content. But very, very music and, and, and light, too. Uh, I was at somebody's a local party just recently, and they had a sound system set up, and it was obvious they were gonna want me to sing. <laughs> and, I, and I really don't, I don't like that, you know, they're gonna make me a party. <laughs> you know. But it was, the pressure was on me, but the great thing was is that there's this guitar player who was, he was a big Ho- Buddy Holly fan. So I, I just said to him, look, I'm being pressured to get up, I gotta do a song. And, do you know, um, um, That'll be the day, or Peggy Sue, or whatever. But I, because I, I did an imitation of of Buddy's voice, and it was a great experience because in in that little two songs that I did, I think I did. Uh, um, what, what did I do? Um, uh, 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 Anyway, I, it, it, I got right on the microphone. I had the microphone right down my mouth almost. And I was singing very quietly and very like, you know. With the little things you say and do me want to be with you. Do. And the, the audience were like, yeah, fantastic. It worked. And for, and for me, it was like such a cheap shot, you know, just getting up and imitating the, the, the voicings of the, of the, of the uh, Buddy Holly band. <laughs> uh, it was a great experience. I'll have to remember it and do it more. <laughs> But, you know, with their, their recordings, I could never figure out where the backbeat came from. It was there. But it was very... Really pop, pop. It sounded like they were playing on a, a stack of books or a couple of um, f- uh, phone directories. It, it didn't sound like it was hitting a skin, you know. But it worked. Fascinated me. It was great, and his uh, it, his recordings to me were um, power without being brutal, without being noisy, and very very personal, very lovely. I mean, lovely stuff. Really great band.
1: Do you remember where you were when you heard that he died?
4: Uh, yeah, stepped out of a bar. Uh, bar hamburger joint in upstate New York and uh, there was one of the boxes that distributes newspapers outside and it just had headlines about the, air, the airplane crash the big bop and all of that mm. and I went wow it was the first death in the music industry that I, that I felt was personal to me I was like wow and you know I was it was like a foretelling of the future because now, I mean, I, every week now it seems that somebody I knew personally is gone. Like this week, it was John Hurt, the actor, who was a big fan of mine, and I, I really liked him a lot, you know, and I really loved the way he had <laughs> that croaking voice. And his, you know, but the thing is, is to get that croaking voice character and be slim through his life like he was, really fine-boned. Uh, he was a smoker, mm-hmm. constant, you know, lighting one cigarette off another cigarette. So it, it was the cancerous kind of uh, vowels that were coming out of him. And I uh, made it work for him. Uh, Leonard Cohen did too. you know. Mm-hmm. Len- Lenny's voice was almost on the point of disappearing and the engineers managed to get it, you know, hold it up so that, and it's just so, that's the test in the recording, but the test for the listener is like the the journey that his voice is is putting you through, you know, because you you have an an old soul singing with an old voice that really gets to you, you know.
1: So that was Eric Burden talking about uh, Buddy Holly. And interestingly enough, uh, several folks that we've interviewed over the years took time out of their interview to make sure that they had a shout out to Buddy Holly. And I think that's what we're going to be hearing uh, in the next couple of segments here as part of this podcast. As we remember uh, the day the music died 60 years ago, February 3rd, 1959. Uh, So that was Eric Burden's take on it. And coming up, we're going to also be hearing from uh, Tommy Rowe. Well, you know, he was a huge influence on my music. Of course, you would never know it by
5: listening to Sheila, right? But um, the original version of Sheila was just regular two, four drums. So it was Felton's idea to take off on Buddy with the drums in Sheila, which worked. I think it worked. I think, In fact, some people used to call in and thought it was an old Buddy Holly thing out of the can, you know, especially in England, when it was a hit in England. But he was very influential. Um, I hooked up as a kid with singer-songwriters, which at that time nobody called them singer-songwriters. They just wrote their own music; they didn't have really a tag to it. <laughs> but Buddy Holly was the one. Uh, Carl Perkins, Chuck Berry, of course, uh, wrote all of his own material. So, but Holly was the big influence. I used to mimic him when with my band. You know, they all of our friends loved Buddy Holly, Peggy, so we used to do all of his songs in our show. That'll be the day. Peggy Sue, Ray Vaughan, you know, you name it. I'm uh, saving uh, my money. No, not that one, but uh, what's the song I used to do? Da-da-da-da-da. But it's raining in my heart. I used to do that in my show all the time. I'm 75, so it's kind of hard for me to recollect back that far. It's a long time. I just turned 75, by the way, last um, Tuesday, uh, May 9th. 75 years young. I'm a genuine, genuinely certified old fart now. So I'm <laughs> ready for the geezer circuit. <laughs> but yeah, they were very, Sam Cooke was another. I mean, I used to love Sam because he wrote his own music. And uh, when I was a kid, I was really a shy. I never dreamed about being on stage performing my songs. I thought I'll write songs and present them to other people and have artists do them. You know, I had this big vision of people doing my music but it didn't, you know, that wasn't my fate. I ended up being the singer of my hit, so that's the way it worked for me. But uh, I've done the uh, Clear Lake, Iowa show several times, probably six, I think either five or six times. You know, the that's where Buddy, the plane crashed. They do a show every year in February on that date, and I've done that show many times. Uh, uh, I've been, Inducted into the Iowa Rock and Roll Association Hall of Fame because I've worked there so much uh, I the Iowans and the Midwesterns really took to my music because of my influence with Holly and they had he had such a big following in the Midwest uh, Through Iowa and Nebraska Minnesota, South Dakota, and so I've worked up there a lot because of that
1: So you were at the surf ballroom.
5: Oh a surf ballroom. yeah.
1: Yeah, tell me about that place. Yeah.
5: Oh, it's nostalgic. I mean, it's great it's I did it the last time about, I think it was three years ago. It's always cold there. I mean, it's just like you picture Holly's plane and the snow. I mean, that's the way it is every time I go there. It's just freezing cold and snow, you know, really high on the ground. I actually got stranded there one year. We couldn't get out. I worked there with Bobby V. and. Uh, Bobby had his van and we tried to leave the next morning and we couldn't get out of town because the snow was so high So we had to stay we were stranded in this place for like three days All the fans were there sleeping in the hallways. I mean it was a mess. It was a mess, but um, It's quite a great show. They do a great job in that ballroom very few ballrooms left You know when I first started I did I used to you could do a whole tour with just ballrooms in the Midwest and that was really the way I learned to perform, was doing these ballroom shows. And uh, so the surf is one of the few that's left and they still celebrate, it's not really a celebration, it's kind of a memorial every year for the the, you know, the three artists who lost their lives.
1: Had you ever been to Lubbock?
5: I've uh, been to Lubbock many times, yeah. Um, well, I say many times, maybe three or four times, I've done shows there. You know, they have a celebration there with the Holly thing as well. That was one thing when I worked with the Beatles, they had a lot of questions about Buddy Holly because they used to do, the Beatles were originally a cover band. I mean, they used to do Sheila in their show. When I first met the Beatles, I never we'll forget, we had a, before the tour started, they, the promoter brought us in together to rehearse with the band and the Beatles came introduced us, the featured acts on the show and everything. When I saw them, I. I oh, boy, that's some backup band we have. I thought they were actually our backup band. <laughs> so anyway, when I first met them, they just had tons of questions for about Buddy Holly. and, um, You know, John said, you know, we do Sheila in our show, and we've been doing it at the Star Club in Hamburg, and people love it. But he said, I, I don't, I'm not sure if we're playing it correctly. So he got his guitar, and he played it. And sure enough, they, he was playing the chords backwards. You know, it goes A, E, D, and they were playing A, D, E. And I said, yeah, you just got to flip the chords around. It's good. It goes to E before the D. And they said, yeah, I know you didn't sound right. I don't know if you've heard that crude recording of Sheila that somebody made in the Star Club. And sure enough, they're playing all over the place. You can't tell what they're playing. You know, it's, I guess it was that, those quick changes from the chords you know, back and forth. But uh, yeah, that was a the moment. They wanted to know about if I'd met Buddy Holly. And of course I didn't. I was still in high school. And I'd never met him, never saw him perform. But um, when he, when, that was another moment when he uh, was killed in that, that plane crash, we were in school and I used to work in a, in a, where they sold food and snacks in school during a recess and uh, lunch. It's called the shakedown. And I used to work behind the counter selling stuff and it came over the radio that uh, Buddy's plane had gone down. And that was uh, another one of those moments, you know. But he influenced everybody. He influenced the Beatles. I mean, you know, the Beatles got their name because they well, the crickets are taken, so we'll be the Beatles. I don't know if you heard that story or not. That's how they got their name. they said, we can't be the crickets, so we're gonna be the Beatles.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> did you see Buddy on the uh, Ed Sullivan show? I did,
5: yes. Yeah, I was doing that. I was thinking house.
1: because that was the Stratocaster. We yeah, that
5: there. was that's why I bought, bought the Strats, you know, I mean, I loved that whole thing. I mean, he was so, with the horn rim glasses and the whole thing, and the way he moved. He moved well, you know, for a rockabilly. He was considered a rockabilly artist. And uh, I never will forget that black and white, Ed Sullivan. You know, black and white. We went from black and white to color overnight.
0: All right, that was Tommy Rowe talking about the influence of Buddy Holly on his career. And we're gonna move it right along to hearing from Brian Setzer, talking about seeing Buddy Holly's photo up in Manny's up in New York City and kind of how the impact that left on him
3: or to go to Manny's or something on 48th Street that was the big thing to go to Manhattan, you know, and actually get into those shops that was a little less personal because there was real, you know, it was a real music store with guys coming in and out buying stuff and uh but yeah, that that was a big deal to actually do all of that. That was a great memory. That's cool. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I remember Manny's with all the pictures, right?
3: You yeah. Know, else who's been in
1: there. They,
3: yeah, they had a picture of Buddy Holly, you know, autographed with a strat. I remember seeing that going, even then thinking it was special. You know, well wow, look at this Buddy Holly bought a strat here. You know, I think it was the one that he really used, you know, the the fifty eight, I think mm-hmm. it was. I think I think he got it at Manny's. You know? It's incredible. Yeah.
2: <laughs> awesome. I think the coolest thing about this podcast is it's showing how no matter how big the star is that you're interviewing Dan whenever you bring up Buddy Holly they all seem to back down and say oh well that that's the greatest like (laughs) no one's ever going to top that and they're all just like crazy influenced by him it just kind of shows how much power he had in that little time that Mm. he was performing.
0: That's what I find so fascinating Mm -hmm. is today a career of three years you you're not going to you rarely find someone that has that much influence 30, 40, 50 years later. Right, yeah. But three years back then, I, I don't know, that's just, mm. it's insane. Right,
1: and it really, to me, I've thought about this a couple of times growing up myself. I'm In the era of uh, American Pie, I was the young kid when that came out, and almost uh, Buddy Holly was Mythical at that point, you know, he didn't really exist on the planet, kind of thing. You know, he was such an icon in that respect. But I think what's held up and why these um, musicians are still talking about him and why he's still influencing younger musicians is the body of work you know when it comes down to it it's all about the song they always say in music publishing right well i think about the legacy of somebody like him it's all about the music and really what did he give us and i wish that um things uh, it legalities in the world would allow us to play some of his music because um that's really what this is all about um is what he gave us musically so hopefully this will um inspire some of our listeners to uh, get out, get their hands on some of the music of Buddy Holly and some of the songs that we talked about earlier because that's really why we're talking about him today is what he gave us musically.
0: Who are we going to hear from next? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
2: when I stop, I just stop. Huh? Yeah, it's like, Don, brain shut down. Commercial no break. More. We'll be right back. Sorry. <laughs> so next we're going to be hearing from Don McLean.
1: Well, he was about 13 years old. He was—he uh, had a paper route, and in 1959, he threw the newspapers out uh, for, to his neighbor's doorsteps um, with this bad news that uh, Buddy Holly and a guy named um, The Big Bopper, who had a big hit called Chantilly Lace, and uh, a very young kid from Southern California named Richie Valance, Uh, all passed away in an airplane crash. And so Don was very, very influenced by that, as many people were. So the demise of Buddy Holly, uh, and the the impact that his music had on people, and just sort of the sheer um, horror of the fact that this young artist, three of them, who are at the top of this rock and roll craze, and it's rebellious and it's exciting and it's social and it's it's all those wonderful things when you're a young kid and then to have the reality of life just slap you in the face uh, was a tremendous shock to people uh, to the point where Don called it the day the music died. And I know a lot of people were kind of shocked by that, but in some respects and in listening to the lyrics and reading the lyrics that Don has, in that song, American Pie, which came out in 1971, you can really see and feel what that impact was. And I asked if Elizabeth could be so kind as to read um, the early, uh, the, the first uh, couple of lines of that song. Would you mind Read?
0: Sing? Oh, no, no,
2: no. no. <laughs> yeah, we need the whole show. Yeah, <laughs> let's get a band in here. Yeah, it's only a 8 song, You can do it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so we'll do a dramatic reading. No. Uh, <clears throat> I have to Now I have to try not to sing it. <laughs> a long, long time ago, I can still remember how, the music used to make me smile, and I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep, I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry and them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. That was very difficult <laughs> to not sing.
1: <laughs> so let's go right into Don's uh, interview where he's talking about <coughs> his, uh, uh, Buddy Holly's influence on his career. I was always different. And so his music spoke
6: to me. And uh, lots of other music spoke to me, but Buddy Holly's death, um, at the time when I was really listening very carefully to a lot of the early albums, the first two or three that he made, he didn't make that many records, that uh, had a powerful impact on me. and a, You know, it is when you, you're young and something dies, you know, an animal or a friend or a parent or a sister or a brother. God is the worst thing on earth. And as you get older, you get harder, you get used to it. I mean, people die every month now, you know. And I don't even think about it anymore. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's me next, you know. But then it's not. You know, you're always trying to stave this off. And so Buddy was a personal thing when it happened to me. And as for his influence, uh, well, you can never know what the influence of, of great music and great records is going to be. You know, it's like Joe DiMaggio, You know, he was at the end of his career, 50, something around 1950, whatever, he played hard and someone asked him why, he said, because someone may never have seen me before and I want them to see me, you know, at my best. Standards. So when you build in standards to recordings and to beautiful songs, You do not know where the influence of those are gonna end. So 20 years from now, somebody might hear a Buddy Holly song and form a group that was better than the Beatles ever was. Or even hear a song by me, you know, and and decide they wanna be the greatest singer-songwriter that ever lived, eclipsing Dylan and everybody. You do not know this. That's why it's so important to put your best work out. Never compromise. And people are always trying to get you to compromise because they don't understand. It's not their fault. They want to help you, but they, we, we don't need help. You know, you just need to be left alone so you can do what you need to do and make it the best thing that you can do. And I think he had that period of time there when he was... Uh, in a, a little zone with the crickets and Norman Petty and those people and they all had a little thing working and he was writing these wonderful songs and Norman Petty understood how to make really good records uh, and that sounded really wonderful and did a great job for him this is before George Martin you know i mean he was important Norman Petty
1: it seems to me that you really pushed the limits on a lot of the things and one of the 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 things that keeps coming up to my mind is american pie and just the length of it. I mean, that alone, I think, changed the way a lot of people were doing records. Do you see it that way?
6: Well, the song had to, I I had to tell a story and it took that long to do it. That's how I saw it. You know, if I could have told it in a shorter period of time, I probably would have, but... uh, And I never intended it to be a hit. I mean, I don't intend, you don't intend things like that. It was a phenomenon and a good record was made. Um, the producer I had was an amateur, basically, but he, he successfully did a few things right, but he wasn't consistent. And uh, because there were so many different kinds of things that I, that I did, I do many different kinds of things. A George Martin would have worked very well with me because he would have gone with so many different approaches that I had and not said, oh, this is a Don McLean song that isn't. And that's the problem you run into as an artist.
0: I mean, I even remember, obviously the song came out in 71. Uh, I was not alive. Mm-mm. Mike was definitely not alive. <laughs> um, well, I was a little kid. <laughs> Dan was uh, a wee young one. Four. <laughs> but that's a song I heard growing up. I mean, mm-hmm. my parents played it in the car, and I'm sure your parents did too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. An, yep. you still hear it when you go out now. Oh, I definitely. Mean, yeah, it's. it's in heavy rotation yeah a lot it's of just places. one of those
2: songs you know where mm-hmm. it's like i'm sure there's a lot of people that don't really know where it came from or what it's about right and it's just a song that you've always heard
0: but you typically hear people humming along to it or singing along to it it's just it's well known mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's yeah. you know i don't want to use the word like a new standard or whatever but it's hard pressed to find someone who doesn't know at least the chorus mm-hmm. and i think that Place heavily on obviously it's catchy and it's written very well but I would like to say it has a lot to do with the content the story behind it Mm -hmm. plus there's a lot
1: of meaning in there I mean when we interviewed Don one of the things his manager said we couldn't interview him about is the lyrics of that song (laughs) so we couldn't specifically ask okay what does this mean what does that mean there's all kinds of different things there's references to Elvis and and Bob Dylan and all kinds of things going on in that song Um, That would be great to get very clear clarification. (laughs) But I think part of Don's message and not addressing all these specifics is it should be up to us as the listeners to determine what it is and what it means to us. But what's clear is the influence. And what's clear is those early lines that Elizabeth wrote. I mean, you know, he, Buddy married, um, got married just six months before. So that line about his widowed bride, I mean, it, it sends chills up and down your back. You know, there. It, this was not just an icon like I grew up thinking Buddy Holly was. He was a real guy, and there was a real person that was left behind. In fact, in, in kind of a very somber thing, one of the things that's been coming out in recent years um, is the correlation between when um, Maria Ella um, had her miscarriage of just a couple of months they um, I think she was pregnant and only two months uh, and the shocking news that she heard over the radio and television broadcasts changed the way law enforcement now tell the next of kin now was that the only one probably not but because of that dramatic thing that happened in her life that was clearly uh, uh, related to how she heard the news there's now a different way that law enforcement inform people so that to me really is um, that's heartbreaking isn't it It, that that to me takes buddy Holly out of the clouds of this iconic rock star to a guy he he was gonna be a dad and he was just newly married so those kinda things that um, appear in things like uh, American Pie, bring the reality of this person in, in, into light. And along with that, I think, um, what I really appreciate is the the clip that Elizabeth saved to the end of our podcast. And, um, and that is from Danny White, who reflects on what Buddy Holly might have been if his life was allowed to continue. And I think those are the elements that make me ponder his influence. You know, yeah, it's great to dream about, wow, it would be neat if, you know, he was still here and things like that. But I think it's amazing to look at his list of influence and the body of work that he provided us and say, wow, he's still here. 60 years later, it doesn't really seem that long ago when you think that his music is still very vibrant. And as Mike brought up, and so often talked about in these interviews that we conduct i don't necessarily bring up the topic it comes up and i think that's another part of the influence of of buddy holly
7: i think that that buddy was would have been one of the greatest record producers of all time Uh, he was very very intelligent as far as his music goes and what he wanted to do Um, Very few people realize um, how good he was with uh, the equipment, Uh, he was building a studio, Um, the drawings, uh, Peggy Sue uh, put the drawings out in her book of his studio in Lubbock, all drawn out, was ready to go, they were already getting ready to break break ground when he died. So I think what people don't realize about Buddy is how intelligent he was in regard to the music business. Um, He had already started a company called Prism Records which was a record label. He started that with Norman Petty and uh, Ray Ruff. And um, so he did that in late 58 before he moved to New York City with Maria Elena and Greenwich Village. So I think that Most people see him as the skinny kid with the horn-rimmed glasses and, you know, influencing all those great bands, but what he could have done, really. I mean, he's the guy who found Waylon Jennings, of course. He's the guy who made the first recording on Waylon Jennings, Jolie Blonde, and that was Prism Records' first recording at Norman Petty's studio in October or November of 58. So, yeah, I think that would be what people probably miss about him. He he personally got King Curtis to come to Clovis to record uh, Reminiscing, which he gave to King Curtis as a gift. He gave him the song. Um, So, you know, flew him into Lubbock, brought him up to Clovis, and they they recorded a couple tracks. So, yeah, he definitely had that. Early on, I mean, Bob Montgomery and Buddy, they wanted to be Flat & Scruggs. That was there. That's what they wanted to be. And if you listen to a lot of that early Buddy and Bob, the close, really close harmonies, you know, it's all in the way they, the way they go about their song structures is very much that. But uh, yeah, he was obviously a big fan. A lot of people don't realize that Buddy Holly and the Crickets were one of the very, very first, first white groups to break the racial barrier on, on tour. Um, I mean, they were playing the, um, oh, the theater in DC with uh, the name escapes me now Uh, but the big but the big black theater in in Washington DC with Clyde McFadder and all those guys this was early on this is on that tour where they got um, this was would have been the 50 57 tour of stars I believe is what they called it and they were they were on that tour black axe and white axe on the same bus and they got to Louisiana and the state police met them at the the border and said whites and blacks aren't playing on the same stage and um, so they had to actually get off the tour and that's how Buddy Holly got sent to um, the Air Force Base up in Oklahoma City, Tinker Air Force Base and that's where they recorded Maybe Baby, Oh Boy, Rock Me My Baby while they were told to leave the tour for a few days on the small little Ampex 401A that I used to own with the estate. Um, So he was very, very out front in regard to race and rock and roll. Little Richard, he was touring with Little Richard and all that, so people don't realize that about those guys.
0: So that was Danny White, and this concludes our podcast on Buddy Holly, reflecting on the life and legacy that was his body of work in a very short career uh, on what will be his 60th anniversary of his death. Um, Maybe a little closing thought from each. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: Well, one thought I wanted to just bring out there is, you know, two other Performers passed away on that plane, and we mean no disrespect by not spending a lot of time talking about them. Um, obviously, their uh, memory is still alive and still with us as well. And the second thought I wanted to uh, leave with you is something we brought up earlier, which is it's about the music. So uh, maybe you guys can all do us a favor and get your hands somehow, however you get listened to music, <laughs> go play some. Uh, go play somebody Holly today. Mike?
2: Yeah, I'm sure there's something coming out for his for the 60th anniversary music wise some sort of collection but yeah same thing um, you know it it's it was such a short amount of time but the music that came out was so um, amazing it's just totally worth a listen if you've never been into buddy Holly or it's just not really your style of music I still encourage you to go check it out because you're probably gonna know most of the songs as most people f- realize that they they didn't know that they knew them they're just um, it's just such good songwriting and um, yeah I guess I'll leave it at that and I, said. yeah and I think
0: I'll go with uh, the the breadth of people who were influenced by him is just overwhelming and I would suggest doing some research into that to see if any of your favorite uh, artists were heavily influenced by Buddy but it'll be interesting to see 60 years from now who else comes out and credits him hmm. as the reason why they picked up a guitar or started singing or writing so Uh, Thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
2: Bye.